0: Now let's look together, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now if you remember from last week, he was telling us that in relationship with people, say an employer, employer, or in the case of the first century in the Roman Empire, masters and their servants, Uh, that you will have to endure suffering in that relationship at times and that we ought to represent Christ well. And so he's saying that this is our call. Verse 22, talking about Christ who lives as an example for us. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to one who judges justly. Now, if you're one to mark in your Bible, you might underline that last portion of verse 23, because Christ entrusting himself to the one who judges justly is the big deal. His his sight was set differently than just on the temporal events that were going on. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep and have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Allow me to mention three things that I think are significant in this text, probably many more available to us, but with our limited time, we're going to just identify three of them. The first is this, that Jesus is the perfect standard to emulate Now listen, genuine followers of Christ are going to suffer. If you're a Christ follower, you should expect suffering. It's not just because we live in a fallen world because suffering comes to a fallen world, but precisely because we are followers of Jesus Christ. Because you are a disciple of Christ, you should expect persecution. You should expect suffering because the way of the Savior is a suffering one. So you should expect that. Jesus told his followers that his suffering was impending, that it was without doubt, saying that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He knew this because it was the commission that God had given him. The prophets had foretold about it. The scripture had been unfolding that throughout the Old Testament. But he also warned those of us who would follow after him, saying that if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He says in John 15, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. And then, of course, the apostle Paul and others continued to communicate this truth about the expectation of persecution. Writing in 2 Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Who? How many? All. If you desire to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. So Christians in the southern U.S. have faced much less persecution than many of our brothers and sisters throughout the country, particularly on the east and the west coast and those in the urban centers and around the world. However, you and I are sensing that there is a storm a-brewing. We sense that, don't we? If you work for a major corporation, more than likely your biblical values oppose the company's progressive agenda. And if you are in one of those corporations, you will more than likely have to attend training that is called equity and inclusion training. And that sounds pretty benign when you hear that, but it is a clash of a postmodern culture being driven through corporate functions that will collide with biblical worldview so if you're living out the expressions of the truth of the bible you are going to be employed by a company that does not compute with those values it's incompatible and somebody's going to have to stand down that's where persecution comes in If you're going to go to a public university, you will have professors who will challenge you because your thoughts and ways are different than their thoughts and ways. And this challenge will come in a way that they will intend to demean you and embarrass you, you, making you an example for everybody who would want to communicate biblical truth. Clearly, he will make the point that the Bible has no place in academia, has no place in modern society, and you will be opposed if you have it. In fact, you will be discouraged from expressing your faith, and you will even be rejected for having faith to begin with. It's the ploy of the ones who come against those who are followers of Christ. And soon those who do not embrace and promote the stance of pro-abortion, and LGBTQ will be persecuted. Furthermore, we should expect that the cancel culture will attempt to silence our biblical teaching and mute our voices as we express God's truth. Regardless, listen, regardless, what God is saying to us through his counsel of his word is Christians must learn to stay the course regardless of the persecution. Speaking the truth in love is our way, growing up in every way in Christ Jesus, who is the head of the church, as Paul said to the church at Ephesus, this is what we must continue to do. He went on to say that we know the people of the world are darkened in their understanding, alienated from their life of God because of ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They become callous and even given themselves up to sensuality, greedy for every practice of impurity. And because of that, you in the brightness of God's glory that dwells within you are going to cause much pain and suffering to their soul. You remind them that God's judgment is against them. And they'll come against you for that. They'll try to shut you up and close you out and snuff you So we must be different than them. As the Bible says, you and I must put off the old selves, be renewed in our minds, putting on the new self, created in the likeness of God in Christ Jesus with true righteousness and holiness. We must shine ever so brightly with righteousness and speak truthfully and live courageously knowing this is the will of God and he will write all things in the future. Jesus is our glorious example of living out that truth amid suffering. The Lord was wonderfully faithful in his mission to live honorably before the Father, obeying the perfect will of the Father, even while experiencing immense persecution. And Peter reminds us that we are to live and follow that example of Jesus Christ. So he says, let Christ be the example. How many of you are artistic? You have just a freehand artist in you, well, three of you. <laughs> the rest of us are subject to tracing things, aren't we? Uh, you ever got an onion skin and you can trace an image and hand it off to your friend and they think, wow, you're really good. Well, what you are is really deceptive, aren't you? On that whole... Tracing thing is actually what Peter is using here. The image below the onion skin is the example. And you're just tracing over the example. That's the word that he's using for let Christ be the example. Christ is the example. In other words, he's the one that you trace your life on top of. So what you see Christ do, you do. The thoughts that Christ has, you have. The way he lives, you live. You just trace over his life in a way that he is the perfect example. And when you're persecuted, let him be what you're tracing so you commit no sin even though people are sinning against you. You speak no deceit even though they will lie against you. You don't revile in return. In other words, you're not going to insult when they are insulting you. You're not threatening when you're suffering. You're not reminding them that one day things are going to change. Instead, you entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. You put your thoughts on God. One day he is going to reset everything. One day every infraction that's ever come against you. Every pain and suffering you've ever endured. Every person who has persecuted you. Every time you've been shamed as a follower of Christ. One day God is going to reset every one of those moments. And it will be forever righted. In all of eternity God is going to make the distinction that you are honorable, that you are trustworthy and true, that you pursued after the things of Christ. No wonder Paul said, I consider the present sufferings of this time not worthy to compare to the glory that is yet to come. Man, that guy suffered immensely. He was reminded though that in the end, God will vindicate him In the end, he will set the record straight for all eternity. And in the end, throughout eternity, in the new heaven and the new earth, God will solidify the honor and reward the faithful followers of him. It's going to change one day. Until then, endure. Be the example. Be the light. Be the one that shows the distinction of Christ. And then secondly, Jesus is worthy... As the Savior, He's the worthy Savior that makes us whole. So He is the only worthy one who could actually make us whole. Jesus is the worthy Savior. I think it's important for us to make this just simple distinction that Jesus did not suffer for suffering's sake, He suffered for our salvation. There was purpose in the suffering. There's always purpose in suffering. There is always purpose in pain. God is not going to waste the pain and suffering that you and I are enduring. He is not going to waste that. Instead, he is working all things for good for those who are following hard after him, loving him, pursuing him. There's purposefulness in that. So the purpose was our salvation. It's what theologians call the substitutionary atonement of Christ. That's some big words there. But it just means that in the brutality in which Christ died, He was suffering because He was taking our place. What belonged to us, He took upon Himself. The sin that belonged to us, He took upon Himself. The death that belonged to us, He took it upon Himself. The judgment of God that belonged against us, He took it upon Himself. There was a substitute that Christ was making for us. Here's the way Peter said... This substitutionary atonement is he bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Now the Bible teaches that every person is a sinner. And the penalty for our sin is death. That death means that we are eternally judged and separated from God in a very literal place in hell that we are damned to hell because of the sin that is in us and the judgment of God that is already upon us. It's what the Bible teaches very clearly. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Somebody say amen to that because that's the good news. This verse says, Without God's gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, everybody would spend all of eternity paying for every sin you've ever committed separated from god without god's love without god's mercy without god's grace without his his joy but he says in this verse that there is a provision that is offered to us it's a gift and the gift is eternal life in jesus christ that jesus offers us a gift of eternal life you don't have to be separated from god you don't have to have god's judgment against you you can have the gift What is this gift? The gift is that Jesus substituted himself in our place where judgment belonged to us. Jesus said, I will take the judgment and I will give them the joy of being in right relationship with the Father. I will justify them. That's a gift. None of us deserve that. But it's the gift of God. We deserve to be the ones on the cross bearing our own sin and shame under God's judgment, under God's wrath, paying for our sins and dying there. But Jesus, who is the only sinless one to ever walk this planet, who did not deserve punishment, who did not deserve the subsequent death that he died... He willingly exchanged himself, taking on our sin and our suffering that we rightfully deserve. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the gift. Jesus took our sins to the cross and he paid the holy justice that was required. And he satisfied the payment due for those of us who are sinful. I love the way Romans 3 expresses this and although I don't often do it, I wanna read it out of the NLT today, the New Living Translation. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God with undeserved kindness declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus. When he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sins. In the the King James uh, and in the ESV it's propitiation. That is God is fully satisfied with the justice that has been paid fully by Christ Jesus. He looks upon the justice that was exercised against his own son because of our sin and he was satisfied. He was propitiated. He did this because people are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Listen, I don't know how more simply to say this. No one can save themselves. Everybody needed God's gift in Jesus Christ. Everybody. What a perfect substitute he offered for us. He was the only means by which we might be saved. And so our faith is given to him. So God's gift includes an unimaginable exchange. God removes our sin and he puts in us the righteousness of Christ Jesus, bringing healing to our sin sick soul that was eternally damned. So Peter makes this statement about the eternal reality for those of us who are in Christ. He says, By his wounds, You have been healed. And there's a lot of confusion about that. If you take out that phrase and just lift it out of the context, you can make that thing sound in a lot of different ways than God intended it to sound. But the Bible is not meant to be read like that. Neither is this message meant to be that you take one little sentence out and not view it or hear it in the context. The context is absolutely essential. And so when you read it in the context, you understand what God is saying in the context of the passage, you will understand the fullness of what it means by his wounds you have been healed. Jesus' wounds... What he's meaning by that is is all the woundedness that Christ endured that ultimately brought about his death, that brings our eternal healing. That brings the salvation that we so desperately need. That brings the healing of our souls and one day in our bodies which will be glorified as Christ is glorified right now in heaven. The wounds by which Peter and Isaiah, where he's quoting from in Isaiah 53, are these collected sufferings of Christ that brings about his death and brings our healing, which is not temporary, it is eternal. Listen, there are times that God provides for our healing, and sometimes miraculously so, and we are very grateful for those times. When he heals us in those moments, he's giving us a snapshot about what will be completed one day in heaven with all certainty. But each of us are gonna die. There's not a single person, regardless of how much faith you have in God, there's not a single person in this house, save the, the rapture of the church. There's not a single one of us who will not die because we live in a sin-cursed world. And every one of us are gonna die. It's the curse of sin that God has pronounced. But 1 Peter two twenty-four and Isaiah 53, 5, are not meant to be proof texts for the healing of those with enough faith to receive it. Instead, they are proof texts for us to say, God is going to reset all things in the future and it will last forever. It won't be temporary. It will be forever Now, to state or teach someone that God has already provided their healing by his wounds and stripes for their cancer or their heart disease or any other sickness is a gross misrepresentation of these verses. And it belittles the eternal value of Christ Jesus' suffering and sacrifice. Yes, in the future. All sicknesses will be eradicated. Do you know why all disease will be eradicated in the future? Because in the future, all sin will be done away with. In the future, this world will be vaporized. When Jesus lets go of it, it's going to be completely destroyed. And he will create a new heaven and a new earth. And it will never be infiltrated by sin again. And where there is no sin, there is no despair. There's no suffering. There's no disease. There's no sickness. There's no COVID. There's none of that. And in that glorious day, we will rejoice because by his stripes, we are healed. Oh, thank you, Jesus, for that kind of truth. It's our greatest hope that you are bringing healing to us. Sin will never infringe heaven, and we will be totally healed. I'm reminded that uh, communion is a reflection of that. It's a remembrance of that, of the cost of salvation. It's, it's a reminder of the brokenness that Christ endured, the suffering that he endured, the stripes that came upon him and the reality of his death and the bleeding of his blood. If you'd like to participate in communion, you'll find the elements there in the seat in front of you. And as you take those, I wanna read Isaiah 53 in its entirety and just with you just ponder and pause and reflect on the wondrous work of God's great grace. Listen to these words of Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like sheep that for its shearers silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken from the transgressions of my people, that they may... They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering and shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And makes intercession for the transgressors. Oh, Father, what an amazing amount of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness that was extended to us through Christ Jesus. What amazing hope we find in him. That he would be willing to bear our transgressions, our iniquities, the chastisement that belonged to us, Christ fully received upon himself. And we looked upon him and thought him to be stricken by you. And all the while, he was stricken for us. Glory be the name of Jesus. We receive this hope in Christ who made himself an offering for us, whose stripes bring healing to us. Oh, how we love the Lord Jesus and yield our life to him. And pray this prayer, thanks and gratitude in his holy name. Amen. Hmm. I want to mention one more point to you, and musicians are going to be moving into place as I do so. The third and the final point is this. Jesus is the loving shepherd to oversee our souls. He's not just bringing our souls to justification, but he is forever shepherding and overseeing our souls. He says in verse 25, "...for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." So before our salvation, we were straying like sheep, aimlessly going about our own way, albeit an intention to live out good at times. We were wayward and helpless and vulnerable and defenseless. We were lost sheep without a shepherd, but Jesus came calling. He called our names, every one of us calling us to himself into his fold. That's the heart of the good shepherd. The Good Shepherd's focus is always on the sheep, how to rescue them, how to care for them, how to protect them, and how to bring about their well-being. And he remains focused on us in those ways. But he's also our overseer. The word overseer is translated from episkopos. It's often uh, the word bishop. It's actually a compound word, scopus is uh, the word we get scope from, telescope, microscope. It's something that magnifies and allows us to see more vividly, more fully, more detail. Episcopos, Epi is a a heightening, it's a, a, a pawn, it's lifting it up, the word up even more so that the one who is episkopos looking is looking even more intently. And so as our shepherd, Jesus is looking with intensity at every detail of our lives. What Peter is saying to those who wondered, does God know my suffering Does God know my pain? He's saying, He sees fully. When you think He's not even glancing, oh, my friends, He's staring intently. He's gazing in detail. He knows every aspect of your life and all the suffering that you're enduring, all the pain, every need, every step. He is watching and he's thoroughly insightful to what is necessary to bring about all those details in your life, even what seems to be bad to you, to bring them for good doesn't just focus on the care and the provision that we need for today but he is addressing every area of our life how we might grow even spiritually and so he develops us in the details we're so grateful for that work of the savior so he's saying to us if you're going to walk with me you're going to suffer but you should know I've shown you how to suffer. And you should know that the suffering is for a purpose. For me suffering, Jesus is saying, it was for your salvation. And as you walk in this salvation, as you suffer, and as you endure, you just need to know, I am your shepherd, and I see every detail. And I have purposefulness. And in that, we can say, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood that cleanses us. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood that makes it that we might walk in newness of life by your Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood. And that's the song that I want to close this service with. We're not going to have a formal invitation like we usually do, but I'll say if you're here today and God is speaking to your heart, I want to talk with you. I have staff that want to pray with you. I have lay shepherds that want to engage you. So after the service, you'll find us. Some will be down front. Some of us will be in the corridors. Come talk to us. Let us pray with you and encourage you as you're making those decisions. If you're watching on our streaming services, send me an email, pastor at mbchurch.com. And we'll engage you, start having those conversations. But in this moment... I wanted us to just spend the closing moments thanking Christ for his blood, thanking him for his salvation, and thanking him for our hope that is found in him. Let's engage him in song and worship.
1: Running out of time, sin separated. The bridge was far too wide. But from the far side of the chasm, Lord, You held me in Your sight. So You made a way across the great divide. Left.